How's that? There we go. We are back in the book of Mark. We've been in this second uh, part two series in the book of Mark titled The Struggle is Real, or what we've titled The Struggle is Real, looking at the, a series of episodes, I'm sure done on purpose by uh, Mark as he wrote this gospel, to laser focus in on the Jesus and his disciples as they're traveling and doing ministry. But really, most, really the lesson is learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And you might say it's sort of a test drive for these leaders. And I think um, by you know, definition, it's why we're here. It's what the Bible is for. A test drive for us. Do we really um, know what it means to follow Jesus? And are we saying yes to following him uh, in our everyday lives? And we see this up close in these... Um, episodes, you might say, in the center of Mark's gospel. We're looking at another one today uh, in the message titled, Great Faith. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're in Mark 7. Open up, uh, turn them on however you access them to Mark chapter 7. Really, right where we left off last week, if you were here uh, in Mark 7 as well. Let me just say this quickly about this passage. You know, I don't know if there's a stranger passage um, relative to an interaction with Jesus, which a lot of these passages are, right? Jesus is interacting with uh, the people that he meets and sharing the kingdom of God than this one. There may be some almost as strange, but I don't know if there's any stranger. And uh, it's a strange passage, but it's also, I would say to you, is profound in its teaching, right? It's a strange passage, but it's profound in its teaching, particularly about what it means to uh, live in a faith relationship with Jesus, about the life of faith that I think many of us are trying to live. So uh, Jesus, and this, as my title says, a Syrophoenician woman. John 7, verses uh, 24 to 30 says this. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Most of you know, I assume, uh, that Jesus, you know, Christ founded, um, you know, what we call today the Christian faith or the Christian religion. And that faith, in a, in, you know, in a, in a very real way covers you know, virtually the entire planet in some form or another, okay? It's a pretty amazing feat. But that being said, Jesus himself, perhaps most of you know, you know this by reading the Gospels, never lived outside of Israel, a very small piece of property um, that's, you know, uh, the size of, I don't know, Rhode Island. That's probably overstating it. It's a very small piece of property. So he started a faith that we're a part of 2,000 years later here this morning, 
but he didn't travel very far. And the reason he didn't, this passage talks about it, but in the parallel passage, the same story with a few extra details in Matthew's version, Jesus tells us why. And he says to the woman, after she's on her knees and breaks in and begs for help, she says these words. They're implied here, but not said. He says, I'd love to help you, but I'm only called to reach the lost sheep of Israel. I came for the Jewish people. You're not a Jewish person. I can't help you. Okay? So that's part of the reason, right, that Jesus, who founded the great religion, never strays outside of Israel his whole life. Not only his anonymity up through the young man stage, but even in his public ministry. However, there are a very few occasions, and this is one of them, where he, you might say, wanders off the reservation, right? Not very far. The vicinity of Tyre, verse 24, um, is like, you know, uh, Victor to Brockport. It's not very far. However... In the, in the Old Testament world, in the Jewish person's world, it's the other side of the world. Because the Jewish, the Sea of Galilee where Jesus lived is the northern part of Israel. And where Jesus and Capernaum, these towns that we're familiar with, it's the very upper edges, right, of the border of northern Israel. And when Jesus said the famous words, by the way, it's called the Great Commission, in the book of Acts, when he's telling his church, listen, I want to give you the mission. And although I've spent my whole life in Israel, right? My mission is for the whole world, but I'm sending you. And here's the mission statement. I want you to start in Jerusalem. That's the capital city. I want you to go to Judea. That's the suburbs around the capital city. I want you to go to Samaria, which was the northern center part of Israel. <laughs> you know, a couple hours drive, max, not even. And then I want you to go, ready for it, the uttermost parts of the world. Now, when you and I think of the uttermost parts of the world, we think, well, you know, we live in a modern society and, you know, the internet, airplanes. We think of, I don't know, Australia or, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the North Pole, right? The uttermost parts of the world. But if you were a first century Jew, the uttermost parts of the world were not Western Europe. They weren't the Americas. They weren't the North or South Pole. The uttermost parts of the world, if you were a Jew who liked Jesus being like Jesus, who didn't get on planes, who never left Israel for both practical reasons, didn't have a car or an airplane, and religious reasons, you didn't want to mix with the wrong kinds of people, the uttermost parts of the world were just a few miles along the northern border. So when Jesus said the uttermost parts of the world, he was talking about the Lebanese people or the, or the, the ancient, the Phoenicians that Jesus meets here, okay? So that's the first thing that's important to know about this passage. But it's also important to know this. Although it's a very short geography, they were as different from Jewish people as one could be. They were, number one, unclean in a moral sense, if you were Jewish. The, the, they were unclean. They were Gentiles. Jews didn't mix with Gentiles. Some of you know that from the other parts of the Old Testament. They also were bitter enemies. And these aren't just bitter enemies in the times of Jesus. Their bitter animosity goes back a thousand years, if you read your Old Testament. There are at least four whole chapters in the Old Testament. Isaiah and Ezekiel, more, but at least four that I can remember off the top of my head, that are dedicated to the city of Tyre and its leader in judgment against the Tyrian people. Okay? So this is an ancient animosity. It's important to know. So why does Jesus do it? 
Okay? I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. Why would he do this? No reason is given. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Now, the only guess I can come up with, it's not really matter what I think about it, but Jesus had had an amazing ministry in the first six chapters of John's gospel. Jesus has thousands of people have followed him. He's healed the 4,000, or excuse me, fed the 4,000, fed the 5,000, raised a woman from a, a child from the dead. He's a religious rock star, and he probably needs a break. And my guess is some friend of the family said, we got a lake house. It's outside of Israel. Why don't you come? Nothing wrong with that. And by the way, pastors are still open to that opportunity. You, know? <laughs> you got a lake house, and if you'd like to take the advantage of this, Jesus, just for a day, for a night, you can do it. I think that, because it says he didn't want anyone to know it, right? As, as far as we know, anyway, he wasn't there because he wanted to launch something. He was there to take a break, at least if we read it at face value. But I think there's two reasons that I think I can, I can say confidently, looking at from the end, from the beginning, why Jesus does this. And they're important uh, to us. Number one is I think he's, he is tipping his hand back to the mission statement to say, let me tell you what it's about. Yes, I'm called to the lost sheep of Israel. It starts there, right? That's where it starts. Abraham, God called Abraham. But Abraham's to be the father of many nations. And although I'm not going to do it in my lifetime, I'm going to cross this boundary because I'm going to call the church to cross boundaries. So he's tipping his hand. I think that's what I would say is clear. But the second thing he's doing to our uh, focus this morning as well is that is he's trying to teach the disciples, the whole point as I said a minute ago, what it really means to have faith, right? What does it really mean to have faith in Jesus, right? Sometimes we think what it means to be a Christian is to raise our hand, is to pray a prayer, and that's part of it. But once you get inside, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus with your life? And that's what these lessons are about. And Jesus uses in this very short passage, that's why I think it's in your Bible, the most unlikely of people, which he often does, to teach a lesson, to be a model. He doesn't use James. He doesn't use John. He doesn't use Peter. He doesn't use Andrew, the people that are dull and don't get it so far in this narrative. He uses a woman who is from an unclean place, Tyre, who herself is unclean because she's a Gentile, in this case, a woman, which is second class in this society. And third, she needs help with an unclean spirit from her daughter, not someone that if you were a Jew, you'd expect to be Jesus' choice, but he is. He is, or she is, I should say. Jesus chooses her. Three things we can learn from her uh, today as followers of Jesus. Number one, we need to get desperate about change in our lives, right? This is my question. You know, many of you are Christians here today, maybe the majority of you. Some even Christians for a long time. Are you desperate for changing? God, my pastor, my, I hear this all the time. My life's not changing. In fact, sometimes it seems that I became a Christian, things get worse. And my husband this, and my wife that, and my job, things are not getting better, they're getting worse. And I say, that's interesting. How desperate are you for change, right? Is it all about what God's gonna do for you? Are you going after your faith, right? This woman is desperate, it's clear if you really take some time, I highlighted it, to understand the antipathy, the, 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 the we don't like each other, the bitter enemies that the Tyrian people were with Jews, Jews and Gentiles, especially this group, 
how unlikely it would be for this woman, who, by the way, is not in Jewish territory, she's in her own backyard, to get on her knees before a Jewish rabbi. It took tremendous courage, right? Be one thing. See, we're, we're, we have a lot of courage to do things when we're not in our own environment, right? It's like someone was joking to me this morning. Maybe it was Roters or one of these guys, or maybe it was Josh Conley said, you know, what, are you going to sing? They're joking about me singing in church, you know, like get up here and sing, right? And, you know, uh, uh, that's not going to happen, okay? <laughs> I've never done karaoke, but I would say this. If I ever do karaoke, Dave, you ever done karaoke? I, here's where I would do karaoke in a hotel bar in Florida. In other words, I wouldn't do it here, right? Because I'd do it somewhere on a vacation, right? Where even if I blew it, nobody's going to care, right? I can come home, you'll never know the difference. This woman, okay, it'd be one thing to say, I'm going to go on a religious pilgrimage. I'm going to go find Jesus in his own territory. None of my people travel to, 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 to Galilee anyway, so I'm going to go there, and I'll make a fool of myself, and it won't matter, because even if he tells me to go jump in the lake or calls me a dog or says, no, thank you, I don't work with non-Jewish people, who cares? No one will know. But here, she breaks into this house, perhaps one of her neighbors. She not only comes into this house uninvited, Jesus really didn't want anyone to come, according to verse 24, but she gets on her knees and begs like a dog. Maybe that's why Jesus used the metaphor, I don't know. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, given to us to know the difference that she was not friendly to Jewish people, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. She humbled herself like a dog to save her daughter with a crumb. Do you do that? Would you do that? You see, I got this problem in my marriage. I got this problem in this struggle I have with sharing my faith. I have this issue that I'm really dealing with. I got a problem. I got an issue. Are you willing to get desperate? in your faith? Do you ever get on your knees and beg God to help you? Or are you just waiting for God and saying, you know, God, when are you going to show up? You show up in Jerry's life, right? You show up in Karen's life. You show up in Jason's life. Everyone else gets what I do. When are you going to show up and do something for me? Or is that how you live? Is that how I live? Are you desperate? And the, the, the principle here is this. If you want to be a real follower of Jesus, you need to be willing to humble yourself before God, right? He's a holy God. Do you know that? Do you remember that? And when's the last time you were desperate about your faith? I had an opportunity this week to sit with a guy from this church. You'd know him if I said his name. And, you know, he, he has a good family, a good job, and if you didn't know any better, you'd say, you know, he's an admirable, and I wish I was like him. But he's had a secret for many, many years, struggled with alcohol, and he's lived with this issue that has chipped away and hurt and destroyed and been defeating in his life for many, many years and hasn't done anything about it. And a couple months ago, he went into rehab and came out, and God did some amazing things in his life, and he was telling me about it. But the essence of what he was saying was this. Rob, I've known about this problem for many years, but I wasn't desperate enough to do anything about it. I finally got desperate. Although we shared a couple hours together in person, I asked him to write this because I wanted you to hear, with his permission, just some of this story from his 
uh, voice, not mine. The first time I got drunk, I was 13 years old. From 18 to 53, I drank daily. Bad things did not happen every time I drank, but most of the bad things that happened in my life happened when I had been drinking. I was in denial about being an alcoholic most of those 35 years. Five, or maybe even 10 years ago, I realized I had a drinking problem, but until a couple of months ago, I was not able to do anything about it that worked. I prayed, set guidelines, and scheduled my drinking on calendars. I promised myself, my wife, my kids, and God to just stop. But I always ended up drinking even more. The holes in the walls, the busted hand, the immense guilt in my heart, the wounds I inflicted on my wife's heart, the emotional pain I caused my kids, none of it stopped me. They knew, I knew, we discussed it. I apologized for it, but it just continued. I think I've gotten prayer all wrong. I'd pray to God to change me, to heal me, and then I'd walk away from him so that I could keep trying to do it on my own. I now realize I even made up my own answers. But of course, those answers are always insufficient. I've been, quote, spiritual enough to know, enough to ask God to change me so that I'd be more able to deal with my issues, but not faithful enough to actually give him my issues. It seems as soon as I embrace just a little true humility that God gave, I, and, excuse me, and gave God back the authority to answer my prayers all came together to get me towards my healing. I had to spend time with meth makers and drug addicts to listen to them and learn from them to finally understand how to get better. I had to swallow my judgmental pride it's as if God was revealing to me how many little prejudices I'd stored up, how much more full of pride I was than I realized, including religious pride. My pride held me back for so long, pride with God and with people. Humility to me was the key and will continue to be the key to grow in faith and continue to heal. Isn't that amazing? He got desperate enough. Are you desperate enough? I think it was D.L. Moody that said, Jesus sent no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Okay? Are you desperate? And let me just give a very quick plug for this friend who one of the things he's doing and has done, had to get a little humble, is to go to celebrate recovery. Right? You got to hang up. You got a habit you're trying to deal with that you can't struggle with, you know what? Come on Thursday night and get real with some people who are willing to face and get desperate about what God wants to do in their lives and can do in your lives. The big idea is this. It's the possession of a genuine humility that alone enables us to receive God's grace, right? You got to get desperate. You got to get on your knees. Second thing you learn from this woman one is we need to get desperate. Two, we need to be prepared for God to challenge us, right? Are you open for God to challenge you, right? That's what this guy was saying, right, Ron? God's going to challenge me. I was talking to this friend the other day about his adult son. And is telling me how his adult son had all these objections to Christianity. And some of them made sense, and I don't know about this, and I'm not sure about that, and what about this, and what about that. And, it was, and I said, well, here's what I would say to you. My advice to you, to your son, is to say this. 
Son, I don't know, you'll have to decide for yourself whether or not Jesus is the Son of God and whether or not the gospel is something you want to embrace. But he said, I hope this one thing for you, that the true God that you're going to find, when you find the true God, he's going to be someone who has the authority to challenge your thinking. Because if you're going to give your life to a God who can't challenge your thinking, then he's probably not a God worth giving your life to, right? That's what you see going on here. But I think some of us have been Christians for a long time. And like this friend, you know, we went out, we were so full of ourselves, so full of expectation of what God ought to be doing for me. You haven't shown up for me. You did it for her, but not for me. You did it for them, but not for me, right? And God says, listen, I want to do something in your life. Are you willing to do what I ask you to do, to be challenged? And many of us are not. Now, in this passage, I've read a lot of commentaries on it. I don't know how you get around it. Some, some guys try to do it. That Jesus is not being offensive here, right? Lord, will you help me? I'm desperate. My daughter is, has a de is demon-possessed. It's wild. It's crazy. Talk about family. It's going to be a great family ministry passage, by the way, right? Here's a parent who's going to the mat for their kid, right? And Jesus says, the loving, you know, let the children sit on my lap, Jesus, you know, says, let the children, first let the children eat what they want. I think he's talking about the Jewish people. I think it's clear. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, which is who you are. Now, how do you get around that, right? What happened to the loving Jesus? What's going on here? It's a challenge. But let me just say this before the next passage, which we're not going to look at, Jesus heals a deaf man. And if you just looked at those two passages, maybe they're like this on purpose. This one, Jesus could not be kinder, gentler, more compassionate. What he does with this woman is 180 degrees is what he does with this deaf man. You go, well, Jesus is a schizophrenic. I'm leaving the church, right? <laughs> Why? Here's what I think the point is. The point is this. God deals with us as individuals, right? We, it's called a personal relationship with Jesus. He deals with you, with, and what he's going to do in your life might be different than what he's going to do in my life. He, he wants something from you. It may not be the same thing he wants from me. So to the deaf mute, he's the kindest, gentlest, you know, compassionate Jesus you could find. But to this woman, who's a different person, just like you're a different person, he says, first, let me feed the children because it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. You can have a shot, but not first, right? Do you have a God that is willing to challenge you, right? But keep in mind what this is. It's kind of a parable, and a parable, like all parables, has a spiritual truth and a challenge. The spiritual truth is what I just got done saying, that Jesus came to the Jew first, Abraham, but then Abraham's called the father of many nations. And through Abraham, everyone else gets a bite at the apple, right? So what she, Jesus is one, it's this parable that says, let me remind you who I'm about. The second thing it is, is a challenge, right? It's a test of faith. Are you willing to let God challenge you? Or when God challenges you, you say, no, thank you, not interested, you're not loving, and you walk away like this friend did many times before the present.
It's not a refusal. It's a testing of her faith. She humbles herself. I think 20, verse 26 is humbling. Got on her knees and begged like a dog. But guess what? She also will not take no for an answer. Right? Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That's not taking no for an answer. That's saying it didn't come the way I wanted it to come. It doesn't feel like the way I want it to feel. I sure wish I had greater priority. But you know what? You're the living God. You created me. Your judgment's better than me. Right? And I'm willing to say, guess what? If there's something there for me, I'm ready for it. And if I have to get on my knees and honestly confess that I got a long way to go, I'm not perfect, even though I go to Browncroft Community Church and I have a nice job and I have three kids and all this, that, and the other thing, I'm a drunk. And I got to get real about that. And God, if you're willing to help me right now, I'm going to get down on my knees and say, help me. And God says, I'm glad we're finally having a real conversation, right? Are you willing to be challenged by God? Am I willing to be challenged? Listen, friends, are we as a church willing to be challenged by God? Okay? The REACH initiative. We raised all this great money. It's awesome. I'm so humbled. I'm so, but I say to other people, I'm the dog that caught the bumper. Okay? Because now what are we going to do? Do we have the courage to want to reorganize our thinking? Do we have the courage to want to say, what is it really going to take to be a different kind of church? What's it going to take if we really want to see ourselves get more serious about being Christians, a healthy church is a growing church. Are we willing to become serious disciples? Are we willing to give our lives more fully to God? Are we willing to give our money, give our time? Are we willing to get real, all of us, deeper community? And then are we willing to turn around and do whatever it takes to see an increased number of families, kids, adults, young, old, people come to know Christ for the very first time? All right? Are we willing to be challenged to do what it takes? You know this thing with Nazareth, if your memory goes back a month or so? Let me tell you something. That was a practice. That was a, that was a practice swing. If, if we're serious about wanting to engage the outside community with the gospel. My niece, speaking of taking challenges from God, she and her two sisters, my nieces, this summer lost their dad, my brother-in-law or ex-brother-in-law. They were divorced, my sister. And uh, it was, you know, unexpected death. And she had to come home from medical school. She was here. She was here for um, a couple weeks, as you can imagine. Well, because of that, well, you know, medical school keeps on chugging. And she missed a class, and she had to make it up and, or try to figure that out. Well, fast forward now three quarters of a year, half a year or so, and she had just, she's been fighting with the deans because you know, everything's sort of you know, in a sequence of this, that, and the other thing. And because she didn't take that class, she now is delayed to take her boards. And because her boards are later, she's not going to be able to get into her clinicals. And, you, and clinicals start October 1st. But you can't get into your clinicals unless you pass your boards. Now she can't take her boards till August. And the likelihood of taking her boards and getting that corrected and getting in the right hands and getting a slot between the 15th of August and the 1st of October is virtually impossible. And she's at her wit's end. Right? But she got this devotional from some pastor. wasn't me. I'll talk to her about that later, I guess. But <laughs> she got this devotional, and she sent it to all of us and said, this is amazing. And it really, she was so moved her life, she wanted to tell. And this is what it said. This was the essence of it. It said there's two ways to live. You can live 
like God owes you an explanation, or you can live realizing that God has given you great gifts. How do you want to live? And she said, I realize this. It's a miracle I ever got into Cornell. She got in when you know you pay state tuition, but you go to a fancy school. It's a miracle I got in. It's a miracle I ever got into med school. And it's a miracle I'm this far. And if God's gotten me this far, right? You can either live like God owes you an explanation. Why did this happen? Why didn't that happen? Or that's why you don't live your whole life. That's why some of us live our whole lives. That's the way this guy I was talking, his testimony, that's the way he spent 25 years of his marriage living that way. Not desperate enough to get on his knees before God and say, God, I need this, right? Change me, help me, right? To humble himself so that God can do a work in his life. And she said, listen, I'm choosing B. I'm going to believe that God has brought me here and God is going to take me further. What about you, right? What about me? Are you living a life that's, you know, waiting for God to, you know, uh, an excuse, right? right? Demanding God to show up or are you willing to believe that God has given you gift us as a church? Last point. We need to know what God is after in us. That's what's so great about this passage in the world. The reason this passage is so powerful, even Martin Luther made a real big deal of it because Martin Luther said, listen, this woman, you know, she understands what even the disciples didn't understand. Remember the last passages? You are so dull. and Don't you understand why I, what, what the, the meaning of the feeding of the 4,000 and the meaning of the... He says to them, you still don't get the gospel. This woman gets it. Because let me tell you what this woman says in her answer. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You know what she's saying? In a very clever, witty way, she says, I understand who you are. And I know, yes, you go to the Jew first, but I know Genesis 12 also says you're the father of many nations. I know where this movie's going, and I know that although you, Jesus, yourself, might not travel outside of Israel, I know that's what the church is all about. I know you're coming this way, and I'm just jumping the timeline a little bit because my daughter's in deep trouble, and I'd like a little advance payment on the gospel now. That's all she's saying. I know, where, I know who you are. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Isn't the gospel going to all the world? Can I have mine now? And Jesus says, yes, you can. Because you asked for it. Because you finally stopped being such a coward and such a, you know, uh, um, you know someone who has this, um, you know, uh, uh, um, expectation mentality. And you were willing to get on your knees before a holy God and beg right? Because it's the possession of a genuine humility. It's not because God is, is a, you know, because he can. It's the possession of humility and dependence that's the basis, the platform for God's grace, right? The gospel is offensive, isn't it? Why is the cross offensive? It's offensive because it's an assault on your sin, Right? Everyone's a sinner. Like this guy went, he said, listen, I had to go with a bunch of meth heads and drug dealers and this and that to realize, guess what? 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And although I don't have a tattoo and I don't have this and I don't have this, guess what? I got a problem. I'm a drunk. And I haven't been willing to be honest about it. My pride's been keeping me from the power and grace of God all these years and that's gonna stop today. How about you? How about me? She understood the gospel, right? As Tim Keller said or wherever he got it from, the gospel's two things. She gets it perfectly. The gospel tells you that you are more sinful than you ever imagined. Do you get that? That's why the gospel needs to be offensive. That's why Jesus is willing to meddle in your life and say, listen, call you a dog so that you'll wake up and see yourself in your full sinfulness because unless you see it, you're never going to get any better. He doesn't do that to point to be judge you just because he loves you. He says, you got, a, you, got a, you got a two by four coming out of your eye and I want to help you. And she understood that. You are more sinful than you ever imagined, but don't forget point two. She understood it. You are more loved than you ever dreamed. And I know, Jesus, you, you, you wandered off the reservation because you love people like me. In sinful, in all my sinful glory, you love me. And all I'm saying is, here I am. Where's my part? All I want is a crumb, right? Are you that hungry? Am I that hungry? Are we that hungry? Um, because this kind of boldness is really what the gospel is all about, right? It's having that kind of courage as individuals, as a church, to ask God to do something real in our lives. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. And before